if you would stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. This morning we're reading from 1 Peter, starting chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they be, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. And all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. I read that scripture this morning, and I wonder how many of you really wanted to amen that one. I studied, <laughs> I studied this one this week, and I always want to be careful with how we handle the text when we get to these passages. And uh, I, I kind of went out on a limb. I, normally, I get my wife to read over these things. And I actually mentioned sending it to somebody else, let them read over it, and I didn't. And so if I say anything wrong, well, that's my fault. And, um, but we want to rightly divide the word of truth. And this is a text that we find in the scripture, right? And so we have to handle it and look at it and ask ourselves, well, what does this mean? If you think about what we've been reading so far in First Peter, remember, he is, he's speaking to people scattered out throughout the world. Okay, and he's writing to them, and, and here they are, and they find themselves living among the Gentiles. In fact, most of the audience actually were Gentiles who've been saved out of it. And so when we were in chapter 2, he said, You are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, I have created you into a new kind of people. Right? And you're now living in the world. And then he says in verse 10, uh, he talks about how they are now the people of God. Then in verse 11 of chapter 2, he urges them to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. But then in, chapter, in verse 12, he said, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of your visitation. In other words, you are now a new kind of people. And you're supposed to live as a new kind of people. In the Gentiles, the world is going to slander you, say evil things about you. We talked about that last week, right? They accuse them of being cannibals. They accuse them of being atheists. They accuse them of a whole list of things. But, you know, in general, people just slander you. And it just is something that happens. People speak untruths about things they don't know or understand. And this was a new religion in that day. And so people are going to say things. In light of that, he's, he told them, this is how you keep your behavior the way it's supposed to be. Submit to the authorities and the government. They're supposed to voluntarily recognize that, yes, God is king, but God has ordained it that there is a government over us, just as we prayed this morning for the government of this nation. After that, he also said, if you were a house servant, 
to be submissive, to submit yourself to the master. That is, in our day and age, we might think of the sphere of work, right? Most of us, at some point, have had to go to work for somebody else. And when you're there, you're supposed to work and serve as though you're serving the Lord and working for Him. And so he tells us, listen, wherever you find yourself in society with the government, submit yourself to it. God has ordained this authority. And then he says the same thing about our work lives. And so that's why when you get into chapter 3, it begins in the same way. Now, we have to recognize this is a challenging text. It really is. But he gets there and he says, in the same way, within the family unit, the wife is told here to submit to her husband, to her own husband, it says. And so let me begin by saying this this morning. She is to voluntarily place herself under her husband's authority. This is not a text that says all women are subject to all men in the world. Have you guys ever heard it taught that way? I have. But this is talking about a specific circumstance. This is within a family unit. And so that's what the text is meaning. To submit means a recognition of an ordered structure. You can submit in real life to an entity, which, which means with, to show proper respect towards the authorities, towards whatever is above you. This can be a military term. In the military, there's ranking. And there's all sorts of different ways we can begin to look at this. But we specifically today want to examine what does it mean between husband and wife. And this text doesn't even answer all the questions. You look up scholarship and you look at different writers. What did they write about this? Some would say that submission here means a voluntary yielding in love. And if you begin to look at the relationship here, you have to understand this is a relationship. This is supposed to be between lover and beloved. Okay? This is not supposed to be something where it is a husband sitting on his throne ruling his family. That's not the context that we get this in. But nevertheless, there is a voluntary yielding in love, a recognition that there is a structure within the family. A similar verse is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church. And we struggle with this concept today, don't we? We really do as a culture, as a society. And part of that is because this has been badly, badly abused in many cases. And we'll come back to that as we, as we work through the text. But for the moment, I want you to consider Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. There in Genesis 2, 18, it says, Then the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. You see, God had a mission and a task for Adam to carry out. Not just Adam, but really for all of humanity. If you go into Genesis chapter 1, it says specifically that he made the man and the woman in his image, and he made them and told them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. They were to rule over the earth as God's ambassadors, as his stewards of the Garden of Eden. But they could not do either one of those tasks alone. It's not talking about in that text that Adam was lonely, and he was all up in his emotions, and he just thought, I just cannot bear being by myself. It was the fact that it's not good for Adam to be alone because he could not accomplish the task that God gave him by himself. And so God created not just Adam in his image, but it says he created man and woman in his image. And so we begin from right there at the beginning, though. We see that there's a, a new mutual and close relationship 
the family unit has a task to be going about the work that God has given them. And just as individually we all have a task, we want to bring glory to God through our lives. And that looks different in different everybody's lives sometimes. But we all want to bring Him glory. Well, a family unit, what's it for? We're all to be about God's business, and a family is just one way in which that is done. But the family is the basic building block of any society. The family is how it's always been done. Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, the man said this, this is after he, he wakes up from his sleep and he sees Eve for the first time. The man says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know, that's always read at, at weddings because it is a, a husband and a wife leaving their family. Even if they're going to live nearby, they're in leaving their family and forming a new family structure, a new unit. They are now a family together. They're one flesh that the bonds between a husband and wife Better be stronger than that of between the father or the husband and his father, the husband and his parents, or the wife and her parents. Suddenly, this is a new relationship. You guys have all seen the families, right, where, where one, one person in the marriage has a hard time leaving and cleaving, and they just want to stay tied in to the family. And sometimes, according to this, listen, there to be one unit now. But man and woman, made intentionally and by design as male and female, were made in God's image. They were to rule over the earth as God's stewards. They were commanded to multiply, fill the earth, and to rule over it. So back in 1 Peter chapter 2, I want you to think about this, right? We're now in the family unit. We're looking at in the sphere. But go back to the government idea, okay? God knew, and there was a recognition, and we read the scripture, that we don't always live or find ourselves in the best situations in life, do we? I'm thankful for the government that we live for. With all of its problems, I'm thankful that I get to live here in the U.S. I'm thankful that, that we have freedoms to do a lot of things, to come and worship this morning, for instance. Nobody wants to live under a government that persecutes them, do they? Nobody wants to live under a government that's tyrannical, that oversteps its bounds, that does things it's not supposed to do, no one probably at that time wanted to be a house servant or a slave when it got to the work section either, right? And we recognize that sometimes there are situations in life that that's just where we find ourselves and that we are still to submit to authority even in the middle of that. I want you to think about, just consider just again, Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get there and they're to serve Nebuchadnezzar. They are there, but they're... They went along and did everything they were supposed to do. They set the things that were contrary to what God had commanded them to do, right? And they were to bear up under great trial and effort. They refused to eat the food that they were given, even though they took a risk in doing it. The, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tossed in that furnace because they would not bow down and worship. Daniel himself got thrown into a lion's den because he wouldn't stop praying. Was he said, I'm not going to pray to the king, I'm going to pray to God. And he was doing it three times a day. And so we find that all that happened when the government asked them to sin, Daniel remained faithful to God, brought plenty of grief over the years. I mean, obviously, we just talked about it. In fact, he got thrown into a lion's den for it. They didn't give up when the authorities 
push them a little bit. In the same reality, you know a wife could find herself in not the best of situations. Are all marriages perfect? They're not, are they? And so we, we kind of wrestle with this text. Well, we're supposed to submit to the authority of the government. Even we're not like the biggest fan of the government. We're supposed to submit at work, even if we're not the biggest fan of the boss. We're supposed to submit as wives to our husbands. But what if he's not the best guy, right? And we begin to ask these questions, and it's, it's a real question. It's a real situation. And I think the Lord is aware that this could be a precarious situation. That's why the husbands are not let off the hook, and we'll get to that when we get down to verse 7. But I want you to consider when this letter was written, there's a very good chance that the wives that are hearing this read to them were already married before they became a believer. They're married. Now they suddenly they have a new faith. Remember last week we read that these Christians were meeting before the sun came up? And suddenly she's going to worship and doing things, and her husband's going, hey, what is this? You're going to get me in trouble? I don't want you going to those meetings. And suddenly the situation was difficult, right? Her husband, it says, it says here that even if he, any of them are disobedient to the word, they be, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. In other words, it's insinuating there's a good chance this man is either very disobedient, he's not the best husband ever, or he's not even a believer and there's a dilemma here. And what it's going to call her to do in the text is to remain faithful and do right, even in that situation. And so that's what we are beginning to wrestle with here. So it says, The scripture's clear on that, by the way. It's very clear. Do not be yoked to an unbeliever. Because we always tell ourselves, well, maybe they'll change. And the scripture says, even if you're, if you're a believer and you're already married, you don't know that you'll change your husband, right? You don't know that anybody's ever going to change, so don't make that assumption. You, as a believer, are supposed to marry other believers. But the scripture's also clear that if you become a believer, you're not to just divorce your husband because he's not a believer or vice versa. And it's very clear in the scripture that, listen, if they want to continue to live with you, you stay married. Your children will have the blessing of having a believing parent. And so it tells you to do that, but also it does say if the believer leaves and the unbeliever decides that they leave, then that wife is free. That she is no, under no obligation to, to submit herself and say, you know what, I'm just going to live with this guy for the rest of my life, even though he's not a believer. If he abandons her and leaves, it says seek peace at that point. All right, and so we, we wanna, I want to say that before we move on with this. But there is hope for an ungodly husband to be influenced, according to this text, by his godly wife. It says that they may be won without a word as the husband observes their chaste and respectful behavior. Now again, back in chapter 2, we were all to silence the ignorant people who slandered us by doing good. 1 Peter 2.15 says, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. The concept here is similar. If you're married to an unbelieving man and he's accusing you of things, you continue to do right. And you leave this in God's hands and you do what is right 
And so he, with the hope is he would be silenced as he sees your good behavior, as he sees the life that you are living and walking with God, he'll begin to think about this. And just in, as in chapter 2, there was hope that as they observed the Christian's behavior, they would glorify God. The hope is that this husband will also glorify God one day. And so that is the, the hope that we find in the text. It says, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. In other words, you wives continue to do good. The Lord knows you might not be able to change them, but you can do good and live righteously. In verse 6, it says that women have become children of Sarah if they do right without being frightened by any fear. Like Daniel, wives are called, really as all of us are called, to continue to do right, to continue to seek God and follow him no matter the circumstances they find themselves in. Verse 2, though, we see these two characteristics that it mentions of, these, of this woman. The first says chaste behavior. This comes from a word, by the way, if you look it up. It comes from a word, this is the same root word as our word holy. It's a slightly different version of that, but it still means pure, undefiled, separate from sin, free from sin. And while it is used in the text to describe virgins, it's not usually of a sexual behavior. Uh, when I hear the word chaste, sorry, that's what I think of. But I think it really just means holy and free from sin. It's a quality of being untouched by sin and is perhaps synonymous with leading a godly life. In other words, we want to see your godly behavior, that you would follow the Lord in all things. When the government overreaches and tries to force us to sin, we don't do it. It's the same here for the wife. In other words, you're here to, we, we want to see your chaste and, and right behavior no matter what your husband says. The second characteristic here says is a respectful or her respectful behavior. The wife is a godly woman, lives under the authority of God. She lives with reverence for God, and that overflows to her husband. She recognizes that within the family unit, there is a position that he has a position and responsibility, and that she's supposed to follow his lead as they work towards the goal of their family. In other words, they have goals. They're trying to work the, the comp, to accomplish God's glory for their family. There's missions. There's things that have to be discussed. And this doesn't mean that the husband just says, hey, here's what we're doing. Let's go. That's not exactly what this is saying, is it? But what it is saying is that she's to respect that there is, he is the head of the family. And that she needs to respect that position. And so that is there in the text and there's no getting around it. It says her adornment isn't just external. It isn't enough to make the outside pretty. If you look down at verse, uh, verse 3, it says your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Notice it says that she's supposed to be this here pure and undefiled, the respectful behavior, but it's not just external, is it? It's really about what's on the inside. Let me ask you this. How many of you ever met someone, and at first meeting you thought they were exceedingly pretty or beautiful? If you're a woman, you, maybe you meet some guy, and you think he's really handsome. And then you get to know them a little bit. And as you get to know them, you realize on the inside there's a lot of stench and rot and just... They're bad people. 
And as you get to know them, it doesn't, you, their, their beauty fades, doesn't it? As you meet them and you hear them, it's like their externals might be fantastic. They got a smile that can light up the room until you see the inside. And suddenly as you get to know them, I, I've had this experience a few times in life, and what's interesting is when other people meet this person later down the road, they're like, oh, she's so beautiful. And you're thinking, give it a few days. Give it a few days, and, and that'll begin to fade, won't it? And that goes for all of it. That goes for men or women. Listen, it says, don't find your worth in, in the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, the putting on of dresses. Let it be the hidden person of the heart, because it's what is on the inside that really matters for any person, but also here for the wife. This is similar language we found in Proverbs chapter 3, that we studied a few weeks ago in discussing gaining wisdom and discretion with walking with the Lord. It said that, Walking with the Lord will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. In other words, we adorn ourselves with our godly behavior. And that's true of men. It's true of women. That the real beauty is, of, is there and following him. And that is what it's saying to the wife. Listen, you go about doing what's good. You live by your convictions. You do what's right. Don't give in. Don't, don't uh, let a husband tell you you cannot go to church. Don't do some of these things. But instead, you go live a life, live a godly life. It says here, it says, talks about a gentle and quiet spirit. Before we go into that anymore, though, let me read this verse to you. This is Proverbs 31, verse 30. It says, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. You hear that? It's the same idea, right? Beauty and charm is deceitful. And it doesn't last anyway, right? But it says, the woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And that's what I think we find of this woman. It's asking us, it's telling her, be a woman whose beauty is found in the Lord. Be a woman who fears Him, and you will be praised. Now, let's look at, again at what, the, what it's describing this wife as. It says, a wife who walks with the Lord is beautiful Him, she has this hidden person in the heart. In her being, she's a beautiful person. The qualities there listed, again, are a gentle and quiet spirit. And I know some of you ladies right now, you're getting upset with me a little bit. And... We look at this text, and here's what I want to tell you about this. The word translated as gentle here can mean meek. It can mean humble. It can mean having consideration for others. And some of you are just thinking that pastor just wants women to be sweet and gentle and quiet. You guys ever seen some of these ads from like the 1940s and 50s? Some of you were there, right? <laughs> you look at some of these magazines and some of the ads, and they've They've been real popular on the internet the last few years because we kind of look back at society and go, what? And it would tell you the wife, listen, when your husband gets home, he's had a long day. You have your makeup on. You have your high heels on. Dinner needs to be ready. And you need to be quiet because he doesn't want you nagging at him. Guys, those are actual ads that were in the paper, right? Those were in magazines. They were all over the place. And you can go and read these things. Is that what this text is saying? 
You need to have a gentle and quiet spirit. My wife's been in the back saying, no, that's not it. <laughs> got an amen, too. This is, see, we're getting, we're getting some, some, uh, some participation this morning. This word translated gentle means meek or humble. Consideration for others. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus is speaking to all of us in that one, isn't it? Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And so when it tells, gives this, this verse to these ladies, is it saying something about her femininity? That, well, just women need to be gentle? Or is it saying all of us, as we try to be godly, are supposed to be gentle, right? And then if you look in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says that he is gentle and humble. So again, should we be disparaging women when it says, yeah, you just need to have a gentle spirit? No, it, it's completely scriptural for men and women. And so it's, again, asking this lady, listen, I want you to do what's right. And what's right is to have a gentle spirit. This isn't about masculinity or femininity. Galatians 5.23 one of the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. In other words, what the Lord works, through, works in us through the Holy Spirit is gentleness. It's one of the characteristics of all of God's people. At least, it's supposed to be a characteristic of all of God's people. So this passage, when it comes to this, isn't singling out the women except to encourage them to continue to do what's right. Then it says that her spirit is... This word that is translated silent here, it also means well-ordered or at rest. The spirit that is at peace because she's walking with the Lord. Didn't we say that when we study Proverbs 3? When we walk with him, we get peace, that it gives us life. That suddenly this, this husband is looking at this new believing wife, and she's got a rest and peace in her soul that she didn't have before. Because she is walking with the Lord and she's placed her faith in Him. She's been saved in every way, in the same way as the man. Proverbs 31, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 31, verses 25 and 26 says, Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she smiles of the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. In other words, this isn't some lady who's just quiet, a doormat. It says her strength and dignity are her clothing. She smiles at the future because, one, she knows the hard work that they have gone through as a family to prepare for what's coming. She also trusts in the Lord. She smiles at the future and says the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Again, that gentleness that we just talked about. The text then speaks of the former holy women who used to adorn themselves, decorate themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit. They too were submissive to their husbands. You guys ever wonder... What, it, what must have gone through Sarah's head when, they, when Abraham came and said one day, God told me to leave this land and go to a new place. And she probably said, well, where exactly is that, Abraham? I don't know. Why not? Should we look at the map? And Abraham said, I don't look at maps, right? 
He's man. He didn't look at the map. He just left. Sorry. They began walking and going, and Sarah went. And I can think of all the different things they went through in their life. And they, by the way, neither one of them were perfect. They both had plenty of flaws, just like all the other heroes that we find in the Bible. Because the true hero is always Jesus. But what we find, nevertheless, is that she was there. They continued to go forth. They weren't, they weren't perfect. They both made plenty of mistakes. Nevertheless, Sarah is commended here for doing what was right without fear. She submitted to her husband, and they went. And it says she did so. They did it without fear. And that the, husband, the wife here, uh, it tells that you are her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Don't let fear stop you from doing what is right. Again, husbands are not left off the hook. Look down at verse 7. I know I'm getting short on time, but if I leave this part off, I'm not going to make it back next week, and so we've got to get here. It says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your lives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Husbands here are told to live with their wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker. Let's be frank. Most of the time, a husband is physically more powerful than his wife, isn't he? Most of the time, he is. And so there's potential there for a sinful husband to take advantage of that. Abuse is real and it happens, doesn't it? And we all know it happens. There's potential for the husband to do that. A husband that is following Christ will recognize this, and he's going to heed this verse. He's not going to use his physical advantage over his wife. Some would read this and interpret though and say it's not just a, a physical difference. There's emotional differences in how we approach things. That you need to be understanding, and you need to treat your wife in a way and speak with her in a way that is appropriate. That you need to take care of her. Your job is partly to take care of this woman. And so you need to treat her the way that she's supposed to be treated. To understand that she's different than you. By design, since creation, since the, since the Garden of Eden, male and female have been different. And you're supposed to treat her in a way that is appropriate. I do want to say this before we move on from that. There's a lot of complications on when we get to, to issues on marriage and divorce. But the first step you need to be, you need to do, if you're ever in a situation of abuse, is get the safety. Where the, what that leads to from there and getting help, I don't know. But you need to get help. And so I say that to all of you this morning. Abuse, physical abuse, should not happen. A husband will recognize, a husband at least that is following Christ will recognize this. He's going to heed this verse. He is here commanded to show her honor. In chapter 2, we were to honor the king. Give him his due. Here you, to, you are to honor and respect your wife. She is a fellow heir of grace, according to this. That is, she is the same in the same way as you are. She is created in the image of God and intrinsically valuable to him. A godly husband does not harm his wife. And that's very clear, right? If she is valuable to God, made in his image, and you bring harm to her, guess what? God knows. And so we see that in the text. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 and 30 says, says this, 
So husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. We're supposed to be one flesh. And when you are one flesh, you don't take advantage of the other one. When you are one flesh, you nourish and cherish it. You hurt one part of your body, and guess what? The whole body's hurting, isn't it? And if you are harming your own body, it's because something's wrong. You're not supposed to be harming yourself, and you're supposed to love your wife as your own body. Verse Ephesians 5.33 says, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see it too that she respects her husband. There's always been this tension, I think, since the fall. I think they had a perfect partnership when they were in the garden. Yes, Adam was the head, but they were working on these things together. You know one of the results of the fall? It actually, and when you read the results of the fall to the woman, it actually says, your desire will be for your, for your husband and he will rule over you. That some of the tension that we have today on this issue is a result of the sin of the fall and continues to this day because that word there when it says your desire will be for your husband is the same word when you get to Cain and Abel it says sins is crouching at the door and his desire is for you to overcome you that there has been tension and strife in marriages since the fall but now we are a people who are said we it tells us we have the mind of Christ that that tension is supposed to be getting eased a little bit that we are still the husband is still the head of the wife and the head of the family but it needs to be a close partnership it needs to be working together for god's glory so again we can't go into detail on all that this morning and but listen in normal aspects of our lives christians are told to submit to one another that yes in this text the wife in the family unit is to submit to her husband but in everyday life, guess what? The, oh, several times in the scripture, we'll find it in Ephesians chapter 5. We find it here when you look down at, uh, at verse 8. There is a submission that is mutual. Where all of us are to lay down our rights as we interact with one another and submit one another, want to one another, consider the good of one another. In my relationship with Stephen, I need to seek his good. I need to submit myself to Stephen. Husbands and wives, on most things, have to do it the same way. And a lot of people, they get scared by that term, mutual submission. Because they think, well, what you're saying is the husband's not the head. And that's not what I'm saying. We're going to study that again in, in a couple of weeks when we get to Ephesians 5 and Sunday evening. And so I think we'll probably be able to go into more detail about that then. But I think we all know that because of those abuses of the past, when you look at those ads and the way the culture went in the 1940s and 50s, and sometimes the way those husband and wife relationships were portrayed, now as a society we want to run the other way. And say there's no distinction. And if you watch TV, the man's always an idiot. Pardon my language. If you watch TV, they, 
they have intentionally tried to break up the family unit. Right? There are organizations out there in the last few years that have said, we want to break up the family. Church, we have to be strong on this, to see that it is a partnership, that the man has the job of protecting and providing for his family, that he is supposed to lead his family, but they do it together. It is a mutual relationship for God's glory. One last illustration to point that out for you, and then we'll close. In a controversial ruling in June, just recently, the Supreme Court decided against the state of Maine concerning religious schools. You guys may not know this, but in parts of Maine, right, they don't have public schools. There's just not enough people. And so they decided, as a state, we would give a stipend to students so that they could go to whatever school they wanted to, except for religious schools. Now, since the 1800s, they could go to religious schools. Until 1980, I believe, they decided, you know what, we're not going to allow students to go to religious schools anymore. Well, just uh, recently, the Supreme Court decided, well, that's unconstitutional. If you're just going to give money out to everybody, it's a public good, then those students should be free to go to whatever school they want, whether it's religious or not. That sounds great, but the Attorney General of Maine, he's still fighting this. He says, I don't want kids to go to those schools because that school's full of bigotry and discrimination, those sorts of things. So here's what he said. This is, this is just from this week. This is from the Attorney General of Maine. His name is, I believe, John Frey. I could be getting his first name wrong there. His last name is Frey. He said, I'm terribly disappointed and disheartened, disheartened by today's decision. Public education should expose children to a variety of viewpoints, promote tolerance and understanding, and prepare children for life in a diverse society. The education provided by the schools at issue here is, uh, is inimical to public education. They promote a single religion to the exclusion of all others, refuse to admit gay and transgender children, and openly discriminate in hiring, hiring teachers and staff. One school teaches children that the husband is to be the leader of the household. He's upset enough about that, that the Supreme Court just ruled on this, and he's just going to keep doing it anyway and cause some more lawsuits and more time and more taxpayer money. Our society doesn't think we, our husband and wife relationship should be this way anymore. I'm asking you as your pastor, what does this text say? I just want to tell you that as the culture pushes this out, we have to be careful to look back at the book and say, what standard are we going to live by? Is it going to be this one, or are we going to go with the culture? And so husbands... We're not off the hook. We've got to continue to lead our families and to do it rightly. And God forbid we should bring harm to anyone. But wives are also called here to respect their husbands, to recognize there is a position of leadership. And God will bless us through that. And he has blessed many of you through it. And you've seen it work out in your lives. And listen, again, as Proverbs 3 said, if we would just walk with him, it is healing to the bones. It is healing to the spirit and brings life to a society that desperately needs us. And so let's pray right now. God, I thank you for each and every family here, for the husbands and the wives. God, I pray for your blessings on our families. Father, I pray that the husbands would lead well, that they would have wisdom, that they would also be gentle and humble in heart. Father, I pray that the wives would, would uh, support their husbands. I pray that as a family we would work together to bring you glory and whatever the, the, the situation, whatever the goal may be. Father, I pray for this nation. I pray that 
as we see so many broken homes and so many broken marriages. God, I pray for your protection on Christian families. God, I pray that these ideas from our society would not come in into our homes. Father, I do pray against abuse. I pray that I pray that we would rightly understand these passages and not push the passages beyond what they say. But Father, help us to lead godly lives. Help us to pursue you as husband and wife. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.